Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. In our episode today, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer is taking us through a series that brings a biblical focus to family. This series is called Families by the Book. Within this series, we are looking at what real biblical parenting looks like in the home. Today's talk is titled, Cats in the Cradle, The Power of Time. If you're in the Ashland or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. Stick around until the end. Find out how you can connect with us here at Unity Baptist Church. chapter 6. Two weeks ago, we started a series on biblical parenting. And when we talk about biblical parenting, we, we qualify that, that we're not just trying to parent our kids in a way that makes them happy or in a way that makes them wealthy or profitable out there in the, out there in the real world when they escape your home. We're talking about raising our kids in a way that pleases God because ultimately who created the home? Is it just a phenomenon? Is it just herd mentality that like apes and uh, other creatures we just herd together in these family units? No, it's that God created the home and God reminds us in Psalm 127, one, except the Lord build a house, they labor in vain who build it. And so we have this institution of the home, but we're not free to hijack it to do marriage and children and parenting the way that we see right in our own eyes. In fact, the Bible warns us, do not be wise in your own eyes. Proverbs 3 reminds us, do not lean on your own understanding, just the way that you feel, your gut feelings about the home. Don't trust that. In fact, God says, trust what my word says. And God has a lot to say about parenting. As we introduce the subject, we kind of comb through all the different scriptures that God uses to speak about the home, and we discovered that they largely settle into one of three broader categories of TLC. Remember that? Time, love, and correction. And today we're just simply going to speak about time. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 6, God speaks about time. Now, Deuteronomy is a book that God wrote to Israel as they're about to enter into the promised land. And before they do, God wants to remind them that this whole process is a do-over for them. Remember, they wouldn't enter the promised land. They weren't going to trust God. They weren't going to do it God's way. They weren't going to have faith in God. And so God gave them a duet namas, a Deuteronomy, a second giving of the law. I'm going to remind you, these are my expectations. As you're entering the land, here's how you're going to see generational worship of God. And the first thing God mentions after he mentions uh, some basic doctrine is he talks about the home in the relationship of parents to children because having a healthy country isn't just about having a healthy church, it's about healthy home units that make up the church. And to have healthy homes, we've got to do it God's way. So in Deuteronomy chapter six, God is going to speak to them about time. He's going to speak to them about both quality and quantity time. So Deuteronomy six, verses four through seven, God speaks about what he defines as quality time. We have to say how God defines it because man does not always define quality time the way God does. We talk about quality time, what are we saying? I took the kids out, we went out for a movie, took them out to Giovanni's, had some pizza. Uh, maybe we took them out to Camp Landing down that way and we took the kids and we spun them around on some rides and you know, we ate marbles in the Hungry Hippo machine and we did fun things and the kids were laughing and we had a good time, quality time. And that is quality and that we enjoy that time with our children, but God is going to see the most important thing we're looking to get from our children is not that they like us, but that, our, that our, the most quality thing we can do for our children is to impart God's truth to them, 
to make them not just like us, but to make them love their heavenly Father. In verse 4, he begins with a very famous phrase. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is sort of a definitive, it's called the Shema Israel. It's the, it's the definitive statement that separated Israel and Judaism from all the rest of the, the other religions in the world that had multiple gods. We have one. He says, and you shall love the Lord your God. Again, different than the rest of the world. All the rest of the world fears their gods and they, they try to bribe them and they try to pacify their anger. But here we have a love relationship with our God and you're going to love him with all your heart, your soul, your might. And these words that I command you today, he says, shall be on your heart, that you need to be genuine disciples serving God from the heart. And from the heart, all that means is that we need to be doing that because we have an internal desire. Our affection is for God. And so when we give, it's not begrudgingly, oh, I guess I better throw a, a five in the offering plate so I don't look like a bad person to the deacon who's standing over there looking at me with a plate, you know. Uh, from the heart means that we give cheerfully, that when we come to church, we're not like, well, I guess I'll go, otherwise my wife's gonna give me what for if I stay home and watch the game, you know. From the heart means I'm going to worship the one true God, the creator of the universe, and I want to be there. That when we serve in church, it's not because, oh my goodness, Jamie tugged on my ear to come work at the kids and they want us, so I guess I'll do this so Jamie doesn't talk about me behind my back. Here I go off to serve. And so from the heart means that we genuinely love God. We genuinely want to serve him. And so God says you should do that with all of your heart. And then he says this shall be on your heart. And then and only then can you teach it diligently to your children. That's where God begins though. He says there's some basic things about loving God from the heart and then you should be a disciple yourself. You see, we can't train our children to love God if we ourselves are not lovers of God. Have you discovered that? That you can't train your children to do something you're not willing to do? Your kids are gonna grow up and they're gonna call you a hypocrite. Yo, you think church is good for me but it's, you know, but it's not good for you. As a little kid, I grew up in one church my whole life, you know, 18 years growing up, went to this little Baptist church in Clear Lake, Iowa, and you see the same faces every week, and, but once in a while, you'd see these kids that just kind of got farmed in, you know what I'm talking about? You go to Sunday school, and there's your, there's your typical, usual kids that are always there, and their parents are always there with them, and then there's some kid that you only see once in a while, and the parents, you can tell they have a drug problem, they drug their kids to church, and so... These kids, they get drug into church and the, the parents kind of open the door and they point up to the church and the kid walks up begrudgingly to church. And they, they, they come to Sunday school, they come to church, when the church is out, they're waiting by the door, they can't wait to leave and as soon as that parent's car drives up, they run out, they get in the car and they go home. And that's, that was their experience. What I discovered is, in growing up in the same church for 18 years is, the kids whose parents went to church with them, the parents who were giving and serving and loving and singing, provided an example for their kids such that their kids in adulthood continued to pattern the faith of their parents. The kids whose parents just kind of dropped off at church hoping that church will make my kid a better kid, those kids stopped going to church in their teen years when they were old enough to bow up against mom and dad. And so we can't disciple our children if we ourselves are not disciples of God. And if you want, by the way, to know how to be a better disciple of God, we have discipleship programs in this church, don't we? It's D groups. Yes, you're going to hear about that often because, friends, let me just give you a little plug about D groups. That is where I'm seeing all the decisions being made in this church. I am far less concerned that, that people every Sunday are flooding and, and coming down an aisle. The greatest response to the Word of God isn't that you had an emotional experience right here, it's that you go out of these doors and that you're living out the Word of God out there. 
And we're seeing all kinds of reports in D groups and you meet together with this small group of trusted people, you and just one or two other people and you learn and you grow and we teach you the Christian faith and how to study the Bible and how to pray and what church is and, and how to know that you're saved. And all these important things about the Christian life, we disciple you if, you if you're open to it. Well, the Bible says that ultimately it's the parent's job to disciple the children, but it first has to be on your heart. But he says, then you shall diligently teach your children. That word diligently is an interesting word. It means to sharpen. You ever sharpened a knife before? Uh, believe it or not, I was a scoutmaster at one time with the Boy Scouts years ago in Kunming, Troop 888. And uh, we would, before kids would get their totem chip badge, if you're familiar with that, we would teach them how to sharpen knives. And there's a certain angle you hold the blade against the whetstone, and there's certain strokes that you do, and you do it over, and you do it over and over. It's not like on the movies, you know, where the chef comes out and he's like, shh, 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 all right, let's go. You know, there's a, there's a very careful art to this, and it's repeated behavior. That's the term that God uses when he talks about sharpening our children for the Lord. You shall diligently teach your children. You should sharpen them. It's going to require repeated activity of just sharpening our children with the word of God. He says we diligently teach our children. Notice God doesn't say teach your children about God as long as they're into it. Don't, it doesn't say, bring your kids to church as long as they want to be here. Notice God just says, you shall diligently teach your children. Now, I've talked to parents before, and they say, well, you know, I don't want to force my child to come to church. As an adult, I don't want to be forced to go to church, so I don't want to force them to go to church, and I don't want to force them to listen to the Bible, and I don't want to force them to listen to me pray for them and over them. And Remember, what did God call this? He says, you shall diligently teach what kind of people? Deuteronomy 6, what do you say? You shall diligently teach your children. It doesn't say teach your adults. But uh, this is, and we're gonna talk about this later on, this is one of the greatest fundamental parenting mistakes that I see as we parent our children is, as our children are very little, we treat them like adults, or when they're adults, we still treat them like children. There's a transitional nature to the way that we parent our children, even as God parented Israel, if you will. He began by putting them under the law, and eventually he worked them into grace. But Right at the beginning, he couldn't just give them grace. He couldn't just give them freedom because they would bust up the world. Sort of like when you give your children complete freedom as a child, they're going to burn down civilization, won't they? And so we, they begin with that. So he says, he reminds them that the people that you're teaching are children. They don't have an option to come to church. You bring them. They don't have an option to do your family Bible time together. You sit down and you instruct them. A parent who refuses to bring their child to church because they want their children to make all their own choices in life, and again, you can't force them to be a believer, I get that, but you can bring them to church. You can require them to be under the instruction of the word of God. And a parent who doesn't do that to their child is a parent who's yet unconvinced that the word here is true. You don't let your kid make up his own choice about gravity, do you? Well, son, I'm gonna open this here second story window. If you believe in gravity, that's fine. If you don't and you think you can fly, give it a go. We don't do that because we know objectively that gravity is true. In the same way, a parent who knows that this is not subjective truth, it's true to you if you believe it, we know that it is true. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. When a parent believes that, we don't just say passively, well, you know, if you like the Bible, well, if you want to come to church, as a parent, God says, you will diligently teach your children. God commands us to do this because they're kids. Are kids capable of making all of their own mature decisions in life? 
Do you let your kid pick what he has for dinner every night? I hope, I hope not. You know, but you're a little five-year-old. You let him, hey, what do you want for dinner tonight? I want another drumstick. I want one of those, you know, ice cream bars. Uh, I want a Snickers again tonight. I want McDonald's every night of the week. You know, you're going to take that kid into the hospital with, you know, uh, that atherosclerosis thing. You know, when they're like 10 years old, they're going to be getting, you know, a heart cath at 10. You can't do that with a kid because they're not wise enough to make decisions not those kind of big decisions in their life. That comes as you mature them into adults. And in that same way, our children don't possess the wisdom such that, well, you know what, I wanna, I wanna go to church or I don't wanna go to church. I want to listen to the word of God or I don't. God says, you will diligently sharpen, teach your children about me because it is objectively true. Now, how can we do that as a parent? You probably didn't grow up this way, I didn't grow up this way, but God says, you diligently teach your kids you don't just farm out that activity. There's certain things you can delegate as a parent. You can somebody can teach them math, another person can teach them how to throw a football. But there's one thing that God says you as parents have to be the one to teach them, and that's about who God is. Because they're not gonna take it from anybody else if they don't get it from you. And so God wants us to diligently teach our children ourselves. It's our primary responsibility. The home is the nucleus of spiritual development, not the church. I've seen it before. As long as I make my kid go to church, as long as they're in a good youth group, that'll... That'll sharpen them right up. It's helpful, but it can't replace you. I've seen parents who say, well, as long as I send my kid to Christian school, that'll, that'll make them a good godly kid. Those of you who go to Christian school, is it full of good godly children? Some of you, I've heard stories. You know, my wife went to Christian school. Me, you know, I went to public school. But my wife went to Christian school. She tells me stories. Or sometimes parents, you know, back in the Midwest, what they would do is they would force their kids to go to a year of Bible college. Well, I failed for 18 years in raising my kid, but I'm gonna force you to go to Bible college, son, for one year. And so Bible college was this weird kind of mixture of people who are on fire for God and preparing for the ministry. And then you had a guy who's smoking out the backs, you know, with a can of skull in his pocket. It was a bizarre place, Bible college, uh, where we just try to use religious institutions to do for our children what we didn't do at home. And God says, you can't replace the influence of a parent in the spiritual development in the heart of a child. And so some things that we did as a family is every night we had family Bible time. You don't have to do it at nighttime, but we just discovered doing it right before bed was the best time because if you do it during the middle of the day or in the morning, your kid's just, you know, he is hyperactive, you know, you've just filled him with, you know, fruit loops and this kid is just, you know, his, his RPMs are going about, you know, four or 5,000 as he's tacking up and he's wanting to leave, he's wanting to play. But we found that if you do it at nighttime, they're kind of settling down and the kid rationally thinks through, well, I can either go to bed or I can listen to my dad teach about the word of God. And you know how they just, the kids become very interested in the word of God when those are his two choices. And so we did it right before bed and we would just, we began when they were little, how old was Colin? Like a year old, was he even a year old? Six months or something, five months? Heaven's sake, kid can't even talk. We had, but we, you know what we did have is we had a little cloth book that grandma stitched up. You remember those little cloth books? And, and she sent it to us in a little book of Noah, or no, Jonah. Noah? Noah. So, thank you. I, re I read that to him for six months. I can't even remember what it was. But we would put that little guy on our lap and I would put the book between me and him, if nothing else, just to restrain him. 
okay? And just to keep him there. And we, we studied Noah for like six months together. And then we would pray together and we would hold his hands and our hands together and we would pray and, and we would send him on. Didn't know how much he got, but it began a pattern in his life. And as he got older, we graduated from cloth Noah book over to a full-on children's Bible, which you can get in any children's bookstore. And we would read the stories and we'd point, ooh, look at that picture. And we'd make it fun. And we would just read through it, and it was so much fun that even our daughter Mackenzie wanted to do our family devotions together herself before she could read, which was always hilarious because she'd get the book on her lap, and she would just start making up stuff about what she sees on the page. It had nothing to do with the Bible. But what impressed me was that she was engaging. She wanted to be a part of that. And from the children's Bible, learning the stories of the Word of God, we graduated to the big person Bible. We started getting into stories you don't find in the golden book of Bible stories. You're not gonna find the story of Balaam's donkey, typically. But my kids love that story. Dad, tell me about the donkey again, the talking donkey in the Bible. Uh, or uh, we'd get into Judges, and there's some pretty, there's some pretty like PG-13 scenes in there. They're pretty violent. And my son's always like, hey, dad, let's go through Judges again. You know? And this, we started getting into those stories and we would start pointing out character traits in our children. We working on those character traits with them throughout the week. And eventually they get a little bit older yet and we start going through the rest of the Bible and we start going through the letters that teach us more of the doctrine of the Bible. Romans, 1 Corinthians, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, and so on. And it even got to the place where when our children were in junior high, I found this to be the sweet spot. When they're a lot younger, their, their mind isn't quite ready for this level of discipleship. And when they're in high school, they're too busy. Junior high, we would take them out. We would start by taking them out. Every other week, mom and I would rotate with the kids and we would just teach them about the Christian life. Here's how you read the Bible. Here's how you pray. Here's why we go to church. Here's what the Lord's Supper is. Here's what baptism is. This is what our faith means. Here's how you can know that you're saved. And we would ask them questions. How are you doing? How are you doing in your own Bible reading? Have you been praying with the Lord? What have you been praying about? What's on your heart? What are you struggling with? When they got a little bit older yet, we started going through apologetics things that they're gonna hear out there in the world. You know, you're gonna go out there and you're gonna hear people say, you know, there's no evidence for God. How do you know that God exists? You're gonna hear things like, Jesus never said he was God. How do you know Jesus is God or is Jesus God? And so we would ask him, by the way, he is God and he said he was God. Uh, but we would ask our kids these questions in preparation for sending them out into what amounts to Babylon. The rest of the world doesn't believe like we believe. And so we were preparing their hearts. And by the way, if it intimidates you, the idea of discipling your own children, taking them out and uh, going through discipleship with them, once again, shameless plug for D groups. Here's what you do. You go out, you go, if you go through nothing else, go through book one. It doesn't take that long. And it's, those of you who've been through it, it's a fairly simple book, right? And just take book one, come to the office, we'll give you a second copy that is blank and just take your, your kid through it. I'm telling you, there is no greater discipleship in the world than the discipleship that a child receives from mom and dad. And there is nothing in God's eyes that is more quality time than that. Can I tell you, every, almost every significant conversation I've had with my children where they begin to open up their hearts, do you know that it almost always happened to our fam during our family prayer and Bible time? Almost always. And maybe it's the kids just wanted to stay up late. I don't know, but I'll take that. But they would open up their hearts to us and share the things that were on their hearts because we got into level three communication about the Bible and it was coming from mom and dad. And so our kids' hearts were knitted to us during these times. You know, it was Theodore Roosevelt who said, a thorough knowledge of the Bible is more important than a college education, or it's worth more than a college education. Why would old Theo say that? It's because college can teach you how to make a living, but they can't teach you how to make a life. 
College can teach you how to earn money. They can give you skills. They can give you knowledge. But you're still going to go out and bust up relationships. They aren't going to teach you how to be good with your money. They're not going to teach you how to honor God. And our children won't ultimately learn to be joyful and happy in Christ just from what they get in college. That comes from mom and dad imparting the Bible to them as God said. You, parents, shall diligently teach your children. And God calls that quality time. But God also speaks of quantity time in verse 7, last part of it. He says, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. What time of the day is that? When you rise? I say that's morning. When you lie down, that's nighttime. When you sit down, when you walk, that's, that's pretty much all day long, isn't it? God want, Now, again, I realize we're groaning in our hearts. Yes, we're not in an agrarian society where the kid goes out, you know, and milks the cows with us and walks the wheat field with us. Society doesn't do us any favors to make strong homes, does it? In fact, society's goal is to kind of pull children away from parents, and it's not unintentional. I've even heard from our governmental levels that they view our children as children of the country, not children of the parents. And they're wanting to take parental rights and oversight away and give it to the state. Friends, that's not what God sees. Government is not responsible for your children. Mom and dad is. You are the final authority in your children's life. I mean, ultimately God is, but it's your responsibility to raise up children. It's not our government. God gives that to mom and dad. And so can I just give you some permission here from the word of God that you have permission to rebel against society? It's not often a pastor tells you you have permission to rebel. Go ahead and full-on rebel against society. You don't have to let society fit you into their mold. Just because society tells you, you need a well-rounded child, therefore, uh, they need to be in this class and that class and this extracurricular and this sport and this thing, and then pretty soon, mom and dad, do you ever just feel like a, a taxi cab driver? You just feel like a cab driver driving your kids around everywhere? You know God doesn't require you to be that? In fact, if God would even caution us if we allow our children to continually and persistently be away from our presence and just engaging in all the things that the rest of the world does without the word of God that we've actually harmed our children. And so God wants us to have quantity time with them because if you have quality time, you try to do quality time where we impart our values to our children without quantity time, we don't have influence in their heart. If you've ever read John Maxwell, he was a pastor, also a leadership guru, he would, he would say that time is influence, and that leadership is influence. He says, leadership is influence, nothing less, nothing more, and he says, how do you gain influence from people? You invest in them. How do you invest in them? He says, it starts by giving them time. I don't think I've ever seen this illustrated any better way than when I was hanging out with my father-in-law, Gary Myers. Maybe you've met him. He's come here a few times to the church here. And uh, when I would come home on weekends from, the, from college, when my wife and I, we were engaged, we'd get up really early in the morning on a Saturday morning. We'd go out and have breakfast, and then the ladies would go out shopping, and the men would just be stuck at home doing nothing. And so, you know, we'd either be watching John Wayne movies on TV, or we'd be in the backyard playing with his dogs. You see, Gary is a hunter, or was a hunter anyway, and he would hunt any kind of bird. I mean, turkey, pheasant, I don't know, do you hunt chickens? Uh, he would if you could. But he was a hunter, and so he had these two dogs. He had a little German short hair named Buddy and a German wire hair named Maggie. And Buddy and Maggie uh, were these tremendous hunting dogs. I know because I've been out with them, and I've walked those fence rows with them in these cornfields in Iowa. And these dogs, he could train them to do anything. I think at one point in time, he taught them how to wash dishes. I don't know. These... These dogs, if you've ever seen a pointer in action, it's pretty impressive. And they would come out and they'd be just walking through the fields or sniffing everywhere. And all of a sudden you can tell when he comes upon something because all of a sudden he just stop. And for whatever reason, like he starts lifting one leg. <laughs> like 
He's getting ready to pounce. And in nature, that's instinctive for him. He slowly creeps up on his prey and he's looking for his perfect opportunity to choose to go in and bite that bird on the head. But these dogs would just hold that point and exercise tremendous self-control. Why would this dog deny his flesh, not just go in after that bird? It's because he spent time with his master who trained him. And so Gary would go out with him, and yeah, he would do training activities to retrieve birds and things like that, but you know what he would do? He would just play with them. He just spent time with these dogs. In fact, if you read any kind of thing on training dogs how to hunt, one of the first things they tell you, number one rule is, you gotta play with your dogs. You gotta spend time with them because that time in a dog's mind translates into a relationship, it translates into trust. And now this dog instinctively desires to please you as his master. How much more, if that's important for a dog to follow you, how much more important it is for it to spend time with your child so that your child follows you? When we don't spend time with our children, we don't have the relationship. Relationships are necessary for trust, and trust is necessary to be able to lead our children. And that's why God gives them this, and he says, you've gotta spend time with your kids. Think of your child's life as a pie chart of time. Think about all the different people that they spend throughout the day with, you know, hour here with the math teacher, hour here with the English teacher, or maybe hour here, an hour there, and we, we parse that out. Whoever owns the biggest piece of the pie has the greatest piece of influence in our child's heart. As a parent, we want to own as big a piece as possible. I'm not saying we have to homeschool our kids. I'm not going that far. If you want to, great. Uh, but the bigger piece of the pie that we own, the greater the influence. And so as a parent, we're looking for ways to buy back time. Sometimes that's increasing the time we spend with them. Sometimes it's decreasing time with other influences so that others don't have a greater influence in the child's heart than a parent. I'd like to give you a story briefly just from the Bible about how this plays out. What if you don't spend time with a child? What do you get? You get a lack of trust and you get rebellion, don't you? A lack of time translates into a lack of trust, which in turn turns into rebellion. We see that played out in the life of David. We all know King David, right? King David had a lot of kids, well, partly because he had a lot of wives. Bible doesn't condone that behavior, but it does just, some have said when the Bible paints a man, he paints him warts and all. You know, God doesn't try to make them look better than they are. Well, David had all of these children, some of which were, were half-brothers and sisters, same dad, different mother. Well, one of his children, Amnon, had an unhealthy attraction to one of his sisters, and she would not give in, and so he forced himself upon her. Now, in that country, according to God's laws, that is a capital offense. You would execute a person for rape, but guess what? David didn't do it. And so this went unpunished, and it created this sense of injustice in the home, and his Son Absalom, who was a full brother to Tamar, took matters in his own hands. If you're not gonna follow you know, the execution of this justice, then I will, and he killed his brother. And it created rebellion within David's home. Well, he left, and eventually he was allowed to come back into Jerusalem, but, well, look what we read in 2 Samuel 14, 28. It says, so Absalom lived two years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. That's a long time to be around somebody, but not allowed to have face with them. He's, then Absalom sent for Joab. By the way, Joab was David's nephew, the commander of his army. It's his right-hand man. If you want to get to David, you go through Joab. It says, so he sent for Joab to see the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. Absalom is grieved in his heart right now because he's around the king. He's in the vicinity of the king, but he's not with his dad. And mind you, this is, this is how it affects even older, this is an older child at this point. 
And so he's around the king, but he's not with the king. Can we distinguish that in parenting? That just being around our kids is very different than being with our children, around and with. When we're around people, like I'm around you right now, but I'm not meaningfully engaging with a number of you yet. We're, we'll go out there and we'll go to a restaurant and you will sit around people but you will not meaningfully engage with them. Is it possible that we can spend a lot of time around our children at home, but not with them? Around them, but not influencing. Around them, but not engaging with them. And sometimes we mistake, well, I'm at home quite a bit, but is it time with our children, or is it time simply around them? Absalom was around David, but not with him. Wasn't allowed to have face time with him. They weren't doing things together, they weren't talking together, and it grieved his heart. Let's see how Absalom's gonna respond. What does a child do when they're around, but not with their parent? Verse 30, it says, then he said to his servants, see Joab's field is next to mine, he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. Wow, why would he set Joab's field on fire? It's a signal flare. <laughs> Help me. Please notice me. And at this point, it's good to point out that this is pretty negative attention, but when a child is dying for attention with their parents, even negative attention is better than no attention. Negative attention is better than being ignored. And so Absalom set field to Joab's fire, or, or the other way around, right? He set fire to Joab's field. And kids are gonna do that. Now, your kid may not be readying matches and lighter fluid at home, I hope not, but what might they do if, you're, if we're around our children but not with them? We don't spend time engaging with them, interacting with them. What might they do? Will they still act out? They don't know why they're doing it, but they will. They may respond with irritability. They may respond with anger. Their grades may start dropping in school because they've stopped worrying about trying to please you because they don't feel like they have a relationship with you. They may have, they end up in full rebellion at some point. They get a little older. They're able to act upon those, those feelings of angst and frustration and they may come home drunk just to show you. They may, they may start doing drugs just to show you that you're not, they're not like you. They may decide, well, you know what, I'm not gonna go to church anymore because they don't wanna be like you anymore because they don't have that time relationship. This is why God says we need to spend time with them when we rise, when we lay down, as we get up. Well, eventually, Joe, or Absalom explains kind of how he feels. Why did he set the fields on fire? He says, Absalom said to Joab, here's why I set your fields on fire. He says, because I sent word to you, come here, that I may send you to the king and ask, why have I come from Gesher? I used to live away from the king. Why did I bother coming back to Jerusalem? He says, it would be better for me to be there still. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king. If there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. What Absalom is saying here is, I'd rather be dead than not to have time with my father. I'd rather be dead. And so this is why he acts out. And frankly, families, this is a lot of times why our children might act out is because they don't have time with us. Sometimes we get upset. We're just like, well, that's a bad kid. He's just rebellious. It, it might be some just sinful rebellion that needs to be addressed. It might also be just that they don't have time. And our children are acting out in that way. I'll tell you a story. There was a, back in 1974, there was a woman named Sandra and she was just driving down the road, you know, doing a road trip, and she's tuning through the radio and comes across a country station. You know how country music is. It's all talking about family. It's, a lot of times it's reminiscing. And it's, she came across this song about grandparents who are reminiscing about the good old days when kids are at home, when the grandkids uh, were there in their home and their presence quite a bit, and now they're not. And so, and it just got this woman, Sandra, thinking, wow, 
And this was her second marriage. And she starts thinking about her first marriage where her husband had an estranged relationship with his father. And she kept just dwelling on that and how sad that made her. And so she went home and wrote a poem about a relationship of a father to a son and the missed opportunities. And you probably know the poem, not because of Sandra. You probably never heard of her, but I bet you've heard of her husband, Harry Chapin, who, wrote the, who took her poem and turned it into a song called The Cats in the Cradle. And it goes like this. It says, my child arrived just the other day. He came to the world the usual way, but there were planes to catch and there were bills to pay. He learned to walk when I was away and he was talking before I knew it. And as he grew, he'd say, I'm gonna be like you, dad. My son turned 10 just the other day. He said, thanks for the ball, dad. Come on, let's play. Can you teach me to throw? I said, not today. I've got a lot to do, but he said, that's okay. And he walked away, but his smile never dimmed. And he said, I'm gonna be like him. And then there's that famous refrain, and the cat's in the cradle and the silver spoon, little boy blue and the man on the moon, all these parts of childhood, right? He says, when are you coming home, Dad? I don't know when. But we'll get together then, son. We'll have a good time then. The song famously finishes with its last verse and says, I've long since retired. My son's moved away. I called him up just the other day, and I said, I'd like to see you if you don't mind. He said, I'd love to, Dad, if I can find the time. You see, my job's a hassle, and my children have the flu. But it's been nice talking to you, Dad. It's sure been nice talking to you. He says, as I hung up the phone, it occurred to me, he's grown up to be just like me. My boy is just like me. And he sings again, the cat's in the cradle and the silver spoon, little boy blue and the man on the moon. When are you coming home, Dad? I don't know when, but we'll have a good time then, son. This is a song that my dad used to sing to me. When I turned 10, he had a friend of his at home, a close childhood friend who just looked at my dad and he says, Gary, that's you. And so this song is very special to me just because it's something that my dad used to remind me, if you don't do anything else, son, do right by your children in that you spend time with them. Not just around them, but engaging with them. What could that look like? A lot of times we talk about spending time with our kids. We think it's always just fun things, which that is good. You know, go on vacations, have holiday traditions. You know, we used to have a family board game night. Every Sunday night, we'd get together and play board games with our kids. There were traditions that we had. We'd do vacations and stuff with them. We would play ball with them. We'd do stuff with them. But you know, spending time with our children, increasing our pie chart of time, isn't always just play. You know, it's biblical instruction at night. Maybe we turn off the TV and let that be less of an influence, and we train our children. Or it could be that just we bring our kids along with us as we go about life. Remember, Deuteronomy 6 says, spend time with them as you walk about, as you go about your day. In other words, God wants us to include our children in what we do. So maybe mom's going out to shop for groceries. You bring your children with you and interact with them. You show them, hey, we're buying this because it's healthy. This is not, right over here, not so healthy. Uh, I'm buying this size, not this size, because you see, if you compare the prices here, this one's cheaper if you buy it by this, not this. And, and we teach our children. Or dad's going out to Ace Hardware. Well, it's faster if I just go through by myself. It's faster, but could we bring a little kid along with us? Oh, he doesn't want to come with me. Just have him come with you and show him, hey, this is what we do. When you go to change the oil, we bring our kid out. He's six years old, has no idea how to change oil. Doesn't matter if he learns, but he's with you. He's spending time with you. You're teaching him skills in life. All of this translates into time with our children. And so these kind of things influence their heart that time translates to influence, and that influence gives the child's heart a desire to follow our leadership. 
Number three, God is going to move on from quality time, from quantity time, and then he's going to show us we also need to guard the time that uh, in our hearts and our children's hearts as to how we, how we engage with the world that's around us. If there's one thing, I told Amber, we've done a lot of parenting trainings over the years. I said, if there's one thing that I would go back and add to the parenting trainings that we, we didn't do previously that I would now is, a big responsibility of parents is to shepherd their child's heart, to guard their heart, to protect their hearts. That we spend time with them and we teach them about God's word and maybe we bring them to church, but we don't guard who else is speaking to our child's life. We don't monitor the kind of inputs that are coming into their hearts and life through movies and music and such. And so God wants us to guard our hearts. Verse 10 in Deuteronomy 6 says, and when the Lord your God brings you into land that he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you with great and good cities you did not build, houses full of good things that you did not fill, cisterns you didn't dig, vineyards and olive trees you didn't plant, when you eat and are full, take care, lest you forget the Lord the God, your God. What is the natural byproduct of having everything that we want, that we're always happy all the time, that everything is smooth and easy in life? What's God's warning? When, when life is super easy and we have a lot of things that we didn't have to work for, what does that tend to lead to? Forgetting about God. And yet in a lot of parents in our hearts, our natural instinctive desires to do what? I don't want my kid to suffer how I suffered. I want my kids to have all the things in life that I never had. And so we try, to, we try to protect our children from enduring any kind of hardship, difficulty, suffering, and we try to give them everything without having to work or earn or sweat for it. And God says that very behavior as a parent is what tends to lead to spoiled children. God says, beware, I'm about to give you all kinds of blessings. Beware that with this comfort and with these blessings, you don't turn around and forget about me. More than, moreover, in verse 14, he warns them, you shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people's who are around you. Who are the people that were around them? You see, Israel was in their land at one point in time, it was the promised land, God led Abraham to it. But then the great famine happened in Israel and their family, they moved out, they moved to Egypt, and they were there for hundreds of years. And during that time, the Canaanites moved in. And so when, when Israel went back into the land after their wilderness wanderings, it was full of Canaanite people and they were living in and amongst Canaanites. Now, we can't help living amongst Canaanites, but what we can do is help that their influence doesn't change how we think. But what God is warning them here is be careful of your inputs. Be careful of the relationships that you take in in a very deep and close, personal, friend, meaningful kind of way. Be careful to guard your inputs because the world is always trying to fit us into their ideology, isn't it? There's one thing that we trained our children is that you know, watch your inputs. Because every movie you watch, every TV show you watch, they have a, there's a ideal that they're trying to place into your heart. They're trying to preach a message to you. I mean, go out there, watch a Disney movie today and see if there isn't a message, a moral message that they're trying to preach to us. Because in every movie and every TV show there is. And so as a parent, one of our responsibilities is to guard our child's heart until an age in which they're able to guard it for themselves. God says in Proverbs 4.23, says, keep your heart with all vigilance for out of it flows the springs of life. Our heart is that internal part of us, our, our intellect, our emotion, our will, and through our inputs, we fill our hearts, don't we? We put, through our inputs, we put things into it. So when we go to make decisions, we reach into that heart and we pull something out. Jesus spoke to this. He says, um, he, he says, beware, you know, talking about what we put into our hearts, he says, out of the abundance, the mouth speaks. 
It's the overflow of what we have filled our hearts. So when we reach for a word to speak, we reach into our hearts. And what's in our hearts is whatever we put there. Could be Psalm 119, talks about your word I have treasured in my heart, so when I make a decision, I reach in, I pull out scripture. Or it could be just worldly philosophy and ideology that we've received through various inputs, books, movies, music, and such. It all preaches a message to us, and God says, beware. It can change how you think. And so God says, keep your heart, or guard your heart with all vigilance. Be very careful. That word, keep your heart, is a word that means to shelter. God sees our heart as something very easily influenced, something that's very weak. And it's not something that once we become an adult that our heart becomes stronger, that somehow we can tolerate sin. In fact, Proverbs asks the question, can you take fire in your lap and not be burned? It's sort of like, you know, when you're a little kid, you know, your eyeball is weak. When you're an adult, is your eyeball stronger? I mean, can I just poke you in the eye and it not hurt? Your eyeball isn't strong. It's just as weak as it used to be. Same thing with your heart. Your heart isn't stronger just because you're an adult. In fact, the, the Bible doesn't tell us to tolerate sin. What does he tell us? Flee youthful lusts. Run away from it. Your heart isn't meant to absorb that. It's going to burn your heart. It's going to scar you. And so he tells us to, to guard our hearts, to shelter it. Now, as a parent, we do that for our children until they're old enough to shelter it themselves, don't we? which means sometimes we protect our children from things that they, that they want to do that are harmful for them, but we don't let them do it because it's going to endanger them. It's going to destroy them. We do that with physical health, don't we? Do you protect your child's physical health until they're old enough to protect it themselves? Or parents, do you just drop your kids off at the public park and drive away and say, I'll see you in two hours? You wouldn't do that because your child's gonna run out and play in the street and you know, you're gonna be at the hospital. You don't do that. I mean, even in your homes, when you, got, when you brought home your first little newborn, what'd you do? You're putting little plastic plugs in the wall, making sure the kid doesn't stick his finger in a plug because you're worried about it. You're, you're putting those little rubber guards on the sides of your table, you're kid-proofing your house because you're wanting to protect his health. Because children do foolish things, don't they? At least my kids did. Did your kids do foolish things? Our little kid, when they got old enough that they start scooting off of that little blanket you put on the floor, you know that stage? They're not just rolling over, they're scooting now. And the first place they scoot is under the couch. And they are able to reach under and they will find a six month old Cheerio and they'll immediately eat it. Everything that's small enough to put in the mouth should be put in the mouth. I mean, it's marbles, it's Legos, and you're always fishing things out of that kid's mouth, aren't you? And when you do, how does your kid respond? They, they, I mean, they're screaming bloody murder. Ah! You know, they're so upset. Because why did you take this thing that is obviously and clearly good for me? Why'd you take that out of my mouth? That's food. You're like, that's not food, it's a Lego. You know, but our kids don't know that because our children are born into this world foolish. And we understand that in protecting their physical life. But spiritually speaking, we have to guard their spiritual heart as well. Will our children in the same way try to take things into their spiritual heart that are unhealthy for them because they're not discerning? They will. Uh, Ephesians 4 describes our children as being, he says, he says this, he says, they don't be like children who are tossed to and fro by the wind and the waves and carried around by every doctrine, human, human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. It's why our children, you know, will get into a white panel van with somebody who offers them a bag of candy to go help him find his lost puppy. Now, we as parents, we know you don't get into white panel vans with guys you met at the park. Our kids don't know that. They're, they're foolish of heart. They're easily carried around by every fad and every wind and wave of doctrine. And so as parents, we guard their hearts because they're not yet discerning. And so as parents, we become discerning for them until they're old enough 
that they will be discerning for themselves. And that means we help them with discernment with their music, we help them to discern movies, we help them to discern TV. As parents, we were very careful, even with what our kids read in their schools. We were, we were aware what they're reading in their books, what kind of movies they're watching. You say, well, this sounds really paranoid. I don't wanna raise my kid that way. I'm just gonna let my kid do whatever he wants. Parents, this is part of shepherding our child's heart is that we're guarding for them until at what point that they're able to discern this for themselves. If not, we're just allowing our child just to run headlong into spiritual danger. You know, even at a, as a missionary, we sent our kids for a year and a half to a missionary school, to a Christian private school. And at a Christian private school, sometimes my son would be sent home books to read that was full of pornographic descriptions in a Christian school. Our children were being taught evolution in a Christian school. Now, I wouldn't know that unless I talked to my kids. Hey, what'd you learn today? Let me see your books. What's going on? Let me know what people are putting into your heart. Our children were invited over one time to a, at a Christian school to a Christian school teacher. Teacher put on a movie for the kids. Come to find out my kids left early because there was full-on nudity and sexuality in a movie that a Christian school teacher with Christian school missionary kids put on for the children. Now, for you, I don't know how you feel about that, but for me, I feel that's wholly inappropriate for my children. But I wouldn't know that unless we were shepherding and guarding our children's hearts, and we were giving them freedom to make decisions, but you know what? At this point, point in time, our children were able to shepherd their own hearts. They were old enough at that time to discern, hey, this isn't right, and they made the decision to walk away. But until that point, we have to help our children. Why are we harping so much on protecting inputs here? There's a lot of parents who think, well, you know what? I wouldn't, want, I, I wouldn't want my privacy invaded, so I'm not gonna invade my child's privacy. Again, we're starting to look at our children as adults before they're adults. They're, remember, they're still children. And so as such, we've got to treat them as children. Now, again, giving them increasing responsibility or, or increasing freedom where there's demonstrated responsibility. But if you give a child freedom without responsibility, it's like handing a four-year-old you know, a, a carving knife They've not demonstrated responsibility in that area yet. We're not gonna give it to them. But there's a story in the Bible about a very, very good parent. I'm just gonna tell you that right now. A guy named Manoah in the book of Judges, chapter 13. Manoah, is one of, in my opinion, was one of the best parents in all of the Bible. Manoah was a man that when God told him they were gonna have kids, his first response is this in Judges 13, 8. He says, Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, Lord, please let this man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with this child who's about to be born. His first response as a parent was not, he's my kid, I know what's best for him. His first response is, I'm a parent now, God help me. Lord, show me what I should be instilling into this child. And so, and we see all the way through his child's adult years that this father is still speaking into this child's life and still encouraging him away from sin. So Manoah was a fantastic parent, but his child still grew up and walked away from God. Why? It's because of his inputs. You see, if you haven't figured it out by now, who is, who is Manoah's son? Anybody know Judges 13? It was Samson, wasn't it? Samson, if you know anything about the life of Samson, he grew up, he was supposed to be a great man of God, a judge, who was supposed to be a spiritual example to all of Israel. But instead, Samson's life is a tragedy, isn't it? But it's a tragedy because we read as he got older, he did not guard his inputs into his heart. He hung out with Philistine kids. 
And he learned Philistine ways. He wanted to become like the Philistines. And the Philistines, by the way, they weren't good friends for your kids. They worshiped gods like Ashtoreth and Dagon and Beelzebub. Yes, that was an actual god back then. A lot of times the Bible used it in reference to talking about Satan himself because Satan is behind every false religion. And so these, these Philistines worshiped these false gods and they would have seven day long drinking parties and orgies and all kinds of just horrific things. And so their kids grew up appreciating these things. And Samson, due to that influence over time, began to have a Canaanite heart, a Philistine heart. And he desired those things. And we know how Samson's story ends. He goes out and he marries a Philistine and he marries into, a, a, you know, he gets a relationship with a prostitute and all these other things and his life turns out to be this great tragedy where he dies in the end in repentance to God but dying in the end and he dies uh, just this, this horrific death. And yet he had fantastic parents, which by the way is just a reminder to us as parents too, you may be a fantastic parent even if your kid goes off the rails and goes crazy. Nobody's here accusing anybody of being a bad parent. You can be a fantastic parent and still have your kids reject your God, reject you, move away and never want to have anything to do with you or your values again and still be a good parent. That can happen. But a lot of times it happens because our child got in with certain influences that pulled their heart away from us. This is why, friends, it's so important that we talk about time. Because if all we do is say, you know what, just... Uh, if as long as you discipline your kids, that's good enough, or as long as you just love on your kids, it's good enough. Without time, we lose influence in our child's heart. Time is that currency in which we buy, if we, we purchase influence with our children. Quality time, where we pass on biblical values. Quantity time, where we earn influence in their heart. And then we guard their time. We're aware of what they're taking in, we help them make wise choices, and we give them greater and greater freedoms as they demonstrate responsibility in those areas as they get older. There's a transition to that parenting, isn't there? But it's all in the power of time, and God only gives us a few precious years to do that. Let's not be that, let's not be singing that song, Cats in the Cradle, when we're, our kids are getting older. Let's not look back wistfully at days of missed opportunities with our kids. Let's find ways to, in, to buy back time. Maybe it's instead of just going hunting by myself, I bring my kid hunting with me. Or maybe I cancel a trip altogether. Or maybe we don't just go to the store to escape our kids. We bring our kids along with us and we, we share those things with them. All of this gives us time, which is influence, which allows us to pass on the faith to our children. And only then will we see generational worship. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you today that as we study Deuteronomy, this is not a condemnation of us. Deuteronomy 6 is a reminder of how we can receive and enjoy the most blessed relationship that we can with our children. That often when our children begin to rebel, our, our first instinct is to pull away, is to avoid being around them, to minimize our time with them, when in fact, you're calling us to deny our flesh, and when we are most frustrated with our children, it's then that we have to push in even harder to be a part of their life, maybe at times when they don't even want us to be a part of their life, and yet we push in deeper to be a, a consistent and regular loving presence in their life. God, give us, give us wisdom to know how to create quantity time with our children so that we can influence their hearts, so that they desire to follow the God that we follow, so that they can know Jesus who is the only way that any man approaches the Father. May they see that life lived out in us, a reality to our faith, 
not just a parent who comes to church, but a parent who lives out their faith at home. God, give us the grace and the strength to do that and to be that kind of parent today, we ask in Christ. Amen. From all of us here at Unity, we would like to thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, click on the link in the show notes, and we would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. If you've enjoyed today's talk, remember to like, subscribe, and share our podcast. And as promised, if you would like more information about Unity, you can connect with us at unitybaptistashland.com or on Facebook at UBC Ashland.